Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, sex and speciation in frogs and migrating mosquitoes. I'm Shamini Bundell, and I'm Nick Howe. First up, what makes a frog attractive? For the strawberry poison dart frog, the amphibians they're most attracted to often resemble their parents. This sexual sorting may give an insight as to how new species could form. Reporter Jeff Marsh has the story. You might have thought that 160 years after Darwin's explosive book, The Origin of Species, would be done with the question of where species come from. But it turns out many questions still remain. This week, in a paper in Nature, a US team have been working in a lab with some very colourful Central American frogs to probe an intriguing new way for species to leapfrog to speciation. We'll get to the frogs in a minute, but first it's worth having a bit of an evolutionary theory refresher. For a bit of background, I called Machtel Vizijden, an evolutionary biologist from Aarhus University in Denmark. The idea behind the evolutionary theory is that there is selection on individuals. There's variation between individuals and natural selection can come from predation, food availability, climate. And some individuals might be better able to cope with the circumstances than others. Another type of selection is sexual selection, where some individuals are better in getting matings, being selected by partners or being able to produce more offspring. So a trait in a male, for example, could be completely influenced just by how sexy, I suppose, that is to the females of the species. Exactly. So you have these amazing pictures from the birds of paradise, for instance, with these ridiculous feathers that look amazing to us, but seem completely impractical for flying. And the idea behind that is that they are selected um, through females liking them. So sexual selection can promote certain traits in a species, but there's a debate amongst modern evolutionary biologists about whether or not sexual selection alone can lead to a new species. Because if one sex does have a strong preference for a particular trait, the genes for that trait would presumably spread quickly through the population, erasing the genetic variation that needs to exist for new species to arise. So there needs to be some sort of advantage to being different and a reproductive barrier to stop the different types of individuals in a population being mixed back into the same crowd. 
One potential mechanism to provide both these ingredients could be sexual imprinting, where offspring inherit their parents' sexual behaviors through learning. Imprinting is very widespread among species that have parental care, such as birds. A number of mammal species, couple of fish species, and well, now this、uh, paper also shows that it's、uh, happening in frogs with parental care. We'll come back to Macteld, but first, allow me to introduce you to the strawberry poison dart frog. You're listening to males calling out from their aggressively protected territories. They're also wonderful parents. Both males and females get involved in parenting in this species, but more so the mother. When she arrives to visit her tadpoles, they vibrate against her body to beg for food, which she supplies in the form of unfertilized eggs. Not only is that objectively adorable, this quality time provides the perfect window for behavioral imprinting to happen. Here's first author Yu San Yang from the University of Pittsburgh. So there are these like tiny little frogs in Panama, and basically on different islands you can see all these different colors of frogs. So, so they're all the same species, but within the species there are these really distinct colorations. Yeah, exactly. What kind of colors are we talking about? We have yellow, we have green, red, orange, blue, and then they ha- also have different spotting patterns. The females, when they're picking mates, usually they have certain preference, so they will like one color over the others. But、um, why do the red frogs like red frogs? Is it because it has the genes that encodes the preference for red, or is it because the individual sees red sometimes during its lifetime and then associates red with something that's familiar? Right, and the only way to do that then is to bring these different color morphs together into the lab, yes, and then have a kind of fun、um, crossbreeding and fostering program. T- tell me about、yeah. tell me about your setup. Yeah, I think it's a pretty interesting experimental setup. So basically, we're taking the tapple that came from a pair of red frogs, and when we take that tapple and then give it to a pair of parents that are of a different color, say、uh, a pair of green frogs. So then, that that red fostered frog then goes on to be attracted to green males. Yeah, so that's our finding. So it's pretty surprising that it is not a genetic behavior, but instead it is something that they learn from the tadpole stage. So basically, the offspring learning the parent's color when it's、um, when it's a juvenile, and then using that reference when on、uh, their adults and doing things like mating. This is the first time, at least to my knowledge, that this has been demonstrated in a frog. Cool, and it, and it wasn't just the the females imprinting on their their parents. It was happening with the boy frogs too, wasn't it? About who they were going to get into fights with. Yeah, exactly. So these tadpoles grow up to be more aggressive when they're engaged in、um, fightings with a rival that has the same color as their mother. Now, how do those two different imprinted behaviors kind of play out in an evolutionary scenario? I mean, I know you can't wait around for millions of years to watch this happen, but presumably you can <laughs>、yeah. pl- you, you, you can plug it into a computer model and see what happens, right? Yeah, that's like, exactly what we did. So the females, because a tadpole from a red mom will inherit the genes that make their skin red, and then at the same time, because they're learning from their mom, they will also have this preference for red. So we get this association between the color of the frog itself and its behavior. That will,、um, I guess, like facilitate the red frogs mating amongst themselves, and then the green frogs mating amongst themselves because the green frogs will also have a, a green bias. So that will reduce the breeding between the red frogs and the green frogs. And so, on the other side of things, the male competition actually keeps both green frogs and red frogs around because when the males are competing with each other, and then they're competing more with the color of their mother. 
then that basically means that if we have a, a lot of red frogs in the population, then we will have a lot of male offsprings that are fighting with the red ones. And then so in this case, being a green frog, uh, uh, being the minority actually has advantage. Then we have a kind of like a balancing selection force on the, to keep the, both the colors around. And then so that will be the raw material which uh, evolution can act on. And I guess it will be a required precursor for any like speciation happening within the same area to happen. Do you think that could be a kind of common precursor to new species, reproductive isolation and then new species? Do you think that's more common than we perhaps have given credit for? I think there is potentially a lot of different animals that have some sort of parental care or some sort of contact with other individuals of the same species when they're growing up. And then the learning in that period have a lot of potential in influencing their uh, behaviors later on in life. And so I do think that it is probably a, a lot more widespread than we considered. Back to Machtelt, who you heard at the beginning. I find this paper really interesting because it so beautifully links the maintenance of a polymorphism, so the different color types, and also explains at the same time reproductive isolation through female imprinting. I worked on a different uh, set of species named uh, cichlid species, and I am interested in imprinting behavior and speciation. So I looked at similar questions in those species and I found very similar answers. I found it super interesting that these uh, frog species that also show some really remarkable uh, maternal care um, also do this behavior and have similar effects on their sexual selection. While sexual selection seems to be capable of maintaining these different types of individuals in the population, does that mean that they're eventually heading for speciation? Is it enough? I don't know. This is really hard to say because we don't know all of the natural selection pressures around. And so especially the predation is a big factor, I think, that is will affect whether these will be different species or not. So there's no predators in the model. There is no other ecological pressures in the model. If there is natural selection pushing them to become more uniform, I don't know that they can maintain their polymorphism over a very long time. That was Machtel Verseiden of Aarhus University in Denmark. You also heard from Yusan Yang from the University of Pittsburgh in the US. You can find Yusan's paper over at nature.com. Later in the show, I'll be talking to Nisha Gaind about the pressure to cite superfluous studies. That's coming up in the news chat. Now, though, it's time for the research highlight, read this week by Dan Fox. A team of researchers have created one of the world's tiniest traffic lights. The multifunctional nanoparticles radiate red from one end when exposed to one wavelength of infrared, but shine another specific wavelength on them and they emit green from the other end. These so-called up-conversion nanoparticles could have medical applications, as they can stimulate tissues from within. In fact, the team successfully used the particles to control the beat of heart muscle cells, by triggering light-sensitive cellular structures called ion channels. This could give doctors a new tool for correcting abnormal heart rhythms. Shine a light on that research over at Nature Communications. If you like to listen to the Nature podcast while driving, you might be in luck. A team of physicists have tackled the classic motorist conundrum of where to park. The researchers compared three typical strategies for finding a parking spot to determine which saves the most time. 
at least in their simplified model car park. The researchers calculated that on average a prudent strategy where you pick the first gap between two cars is the most efficient. This was slightly ahead of an optimistic option where you drive straight to the destination and then backtrack to find a spot. But bad news for drivers using a meek strategy where you park in the first available space next to a car as this finished a distant third. Read the full paper after you've parked in the Journal of Statistical Mechanics, Theory and Experiment. Next up, I've been looking into malaria and mosquitoes. Malaria kills hundreds of thousands of people a year and causes illness in millions. One of the most effective ways to fight it is to control the mosquitoes that spread malaria, but that requires a really good understanding of the mosquito life cycle. First, female mosquitoes lay eggs at the surface of water, anything from a puddle to a lake. Next, once the eggs become submerged, the larvae hatch and feed in the water. Then after about a week, they complete their life cycle and take to the air as adults. That is when all the biting, swatting and mating takes place, which leads us neatly back to the egg laying again. Malaria is spread during the adult phase, but crucially, in order to get there, mosquitoes need water. This Achilles heel, as it were, means that in areas like northern Africa, where there are dry seasons and water dries up, mosquitoes disappear. But when the rains return, mosquito numbers surge, and they do so very quickly. Too quickly, in fact. For decades, scientists haven't been able to work out how mosquitoes can return in such numbers after rains come. Where do they come from? Well, this week in Nature, there may be an answer. We'll hear from one of the researchers involved in that study a bit later, but first, here is Nora J. Bozanski, a researcher in malaria and its vector, the mosquito, with a bit of background. You might think, well, maybe even though the pools and puddles are dried up, the mosquito eggs or various mature stages, maybe they can sort of live in suspended animation. (laughs) And once you add water, they pop back into life. Well, that doesn't happen according to a lot of research. So we can rule that out. Now, the other thing you might consider. Suppose, you know, a mosquito gets trapped in someone's car, right, and gets transported somehow by humans. This happens, we know it does, but that can't explain the data because you don't get such a surge in numbers by this kind of accidental mode of human transport. So that doesn't work either. Maybe these mosquitoes persist locally in a state of dormancy that we call estivation. The problem is that people have spent months and years searching for mosquitoes in these, in animal burrows, tree holes, wherever, and they cannot find them in great numbers. So if you discount these unlikely theories, what is left? So maybe the most obvious idea is that um, adult mosquitoes can fly back and recolonize um, from a place where water is present year-round. But as far as scientists can tell, mosquitoes can't really fly for more than five kilometres, which isn't really far enough to repopulate some more remote areas. So that leaves really only 
one other notion, which would be, well, suppose these mosquitoes are migrating on high-altitude winds. And that is exactly what a team led by Tovey Lehman is suggesting in a paper in this week's Nature, based on data from a dry region of Mali. Now, testing this hypothesis is pretty tricky. Tovey and his team needed to find evidence of tiny mosquitoes travelling at high altitudes. But to do it, they used a fairly simple method. Here's Tovey to explain. We have used large helium filled balloons that are tethered to the ground and on the line that tethers them to the ground we hanged sticky nets. Nora was sceptical of the idea when she first heard about it. At the time, a number of us thought it was fairly insane. Think about it. You know, a tiny insect like a mosquito traveling in an airstream and you've got just a single balloon with a net. Even if mosquitoes do this, even if they travel this way, what's the chance you're going to sample them with a single balloon that has three sticky nets tethered to it? But find mosquitoes they did. Instead of finding only one or two species that might do this crazy thing of windborne long-distance migration, we have found tens of species. Essentially, we find that the majority, over 50% of the species of mosquitoes in Mali, engage in such movements. And with this limited uh, effort, and I would say very ineffective sampling technique, finding such diversity was our first, I would say, surprise. Now, you may wonder if just catching mosquitoes really means they are migrating. Could they not just be caught up in the breeze? Tovey didn't directly show that mosquitoes were going from one place to another by tagging them or otherwise, but the timing was consistent with mosquitoes moving between wet areas with the seasons. And this method of migration might not actually be that outlandish. From butterflies to aphids, there are many other examples of insects using high-altitude winds to migrate. Nora certainly seemed convinced. Without question. I'm totally convinced. Tovey suggests that mosquitoes can migrate up to 300 kilometres in this way. So what does all this mean for controlling malaria? Well, let's do some maths. Tovey collected over 3,000 mosquitoes with his balloons. Of those, 235 were species that are capable of carrying malaria. But Tovey's sample size was still very small. Extrapolate it out and he predicts in the dry region of northern Africa, the Sahel, millions of mosquitoes could be migrating. And of those, hundreds of thousands could be carrying malaria. If they were, these numbers are high enough to reinfect whole areas that are free from malaria. It could also facilitate the spread of insecticide resistance. But as it happens, even though Tovey found plenty of mosquitoes capable of carrying malaria, none of them were actually infected with the disease. This could be just a quirk of the small sample size, or it's possible that something about being infected could prevent mosquitoes from migrating on the winds. As yet, scientists don't know. But this discovery is still very important for the field. Here's Nora. I think the main findings are, I would go so far as to say, transformative for the field. I mean, even if it's uninfected mosquitoes, the idea that they can migrate 300 kilometers a night is um, something that I think 
we never dreamed of before this. <laughs> it's, it, it really is sort of revolutionizing our understanding of the basic biology of these mosquitoes. That was Nora J. Bizansky of the University of Notre Dame in the US. You also heard from Toby Lehman of the National Institute of Health, also in the US. You can find Toby's paper over at nature.com. Last up on the show, it's time for the news chat. I'm joined in the studio by Nisha Gaind, Nature's European Bureau Chief. Nisha, hi. Hi, Nick. So for the first story this week, we're talking about the parasite guinea worm. Before we get into the news from that, Nisha, what exactly is guinea worm? Yeah, so guinea worm is this pretty horrible parasite that historically has affected Asia and Africa, and it comes from drinking water that carry guinea worm larvae, and these can enter the body and they grow a sort of stringy worm that can be up to 90 centimetres long, and it often erupts through the skin on the leg, and it's the journey of this worm out of the body that becomes extremely painful and can completely incapacitate people, and there's no drug or vaccine to treat it. So it's a pretty horrible disease, and because of this, the World Health Organization actually targeted it for extinction by 2020. Yeah, that's right. Only one human disease has been eradicated so far, that's smallpox, but the World Health Organization had been hoping that guinea worm would be the second disease to be eradicated, and it had been hoping to do that by 2020. But you say hoping there, they're not actually going to aim for that anymore. That's right. So that's what we have heard in the past few days. The World Health Organization has rather quietly pushed back its ambition for stamping out this disease and they've pushed it back to 2030. And there are a few sort of uh, worrying but quite complex reasons for why they've decided to do that. So what are these reasons then? So part of the problem is that researchers are still finding out quite a few new things about guinea worm. For a long time, uh, they thought that uh, it only infected humans. But in the past few years, there have been a number of discoveries that have suggested that it also infects other animals and also that the routes of transmission might not be as simple as they thought they initially were. Researchers initially thought that they could just target drinking water and use quite simple measures to try and get rid of these guinea worm larvae, but that doesn't seem to have worked. So as part of this, they found that infections are soaring in dogs. There are also some infections in baboons, and all of these are raising questions about how guinea worm is transmitted. So the deadline for eradicating this disease has been pushed back. So what, what is the new strategy? So the WHO says that this new date of 2030 is intended to allow time to stop the transition of, gimme, of guinea worm, but also for a certification committee to verify that the disease is truly gone. And that process is something that takes three or more years because the commission has to certify that there are no people with an infection or no animals with an infection. And that takes quite intense surveillance. For our next story then, there's been a poll about pressure to cite. Nisha, this is actually going back to a story we published a few weeks ago about manipulation of citations. What, what was that story about? So that story was about the Dutch publisher Elsevier, and they had conducted quite a rigorous analysis of peer reviewers who work for their journals. And they had found that a small proportion of them seemed to be consistently using the peer review process to perhaps boost their own citations. And that's a rather frowned upon uh, thing to do. 
do. They were effectively exploiting peer review for their own benefit. So as a follow-up to that, Nature's done its own poll about this pressure to cite or citation manipulation. Nisha, what were the results from this? Yeah, that's right. So we became interested in this question of coercive citation, and that's the name that we give to this practice that could be for example, peer reviewers or journal editors perhaps pressuring study authors in the review process or in the publication process to cite particular citations. And we asked our readers whether they had ever felt pressured by peer reviewers to cite seemingly superfluous studies in their work. And the results were quite interesting. We found out that about 66% of our readers, and there were thousands of readers who who answered this poll, about 66% of them said that, yes, they had felt pressure to cite kind of unnecessary studies uh, in the peer review process. And that's quite a high proportion of readers then. How does this compare to other polls that have looked at this? It is a really high proportion of readers, and it was something that we were quite surprised by. And it's much higher than other surveys have previously found. One survey found that a fifth of researchers reported uh, that they had been asked by journal editors to include some superfluous citations. um, And another found the rate to be about 14%. But these are different surveys. They have been differently conducted and looked at people in different fields. So our poll is much more of a general question just to get a flavour of what readers and what the community might be thinking about. But it certainly suggests that this issue of uh, coercive citation does seem to be emerging in the research community. And it's something that uh, readers and researchers are increasingly aware of. And so what can be done about this phenomenon? There are suggestions that journals should be doing more about this because they are the one who are ultimately in control of the peer review process. And perhaps journal editors could be more aware of whether peer reviewers are suggesting that study authors add more citations perhaps to the peer reviewers' own work during the review process. So there's a suggestion that there should be more scrutiny of, you know, the request to add references in peer review. Thanks, Nisha. Listeners, head over to nature.com slash news for more on these stories and all the latest from the world of science. That's all for this week. If you've liked what you've heard, why not leave us a review? The best place to do that is on the Apple Podcasts app. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Nick Howe. See you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, 
turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.